Thanks to Mr. Koya for sponsoring this episode of Show Me the Meaning. Head to MrKoya.com and enter the code SHOWME at checkout to receive 20% off your order, plus free shipping when you buy two or more shirts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast. What is the meaning of this movie? (laughs) (laughs) My name is Jared, and we're joined here with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan. Hey, film fans. And Austin. Hey. And joining us again is Rebecca, the resident Matrix nerd. <laughs> Stop, y'all. All right. So today we're, t- I, I'm very excited about this podcast. Today we're talking about The Matrix Reloaded, the 2003 movie written and directed by the Wachowskis, starring Keanu Reeves. I'm starting to think we should uh, rename this podcast The Keanu Cast. How do you guys feel about that? Because <laughs> we, did, we did John Wick last week, and then two weeks before we did The Matrix. Only if that means we can do Bill and Ted next week. <laughs> oh, I would love to do Bill and Ted. I, Bill and Ted's bogus journey would actually, I think, be a very interesting episode. But Anyway, I'm very interested to see how this is going to go, because, God, there is a lot to talk about. So let's get some first impressions, starting with Ryan. Um, wow. Well, this movie, uh, uh, the first time I saw it was in high school, and it totally worked on me the first time. I, a couple, I saw it like three or four times in the theater, and mainly because of the burly brawl, you know, where Keanu Reeves fights thousands of Agent Smiths, and then the uh, the highway scene, those are pretty amazing cinematic spectacles, I'd yeah. say, that are uh, uh, not in any other movies, or at least at the time. But uh, but yeah, the rest of the movie, like after revisiting it over the years, and especially after revisiting this time, this movie is a total mess, and I'm excited to hear what y'all... How, how you can enlighten me about why or what the fuck this is going on in this movie because the exposition accepted. sucks challenge accepted for me too all right well, let's go with rebecca next uh well so i first saw this movie in college and it it uh i mean i think i really really liked it um but i don't think i really got it uh until just a few years ago i don't think i really understood like why it was so philosophically interesting. And so, I mean, I guess that kind of harkens to the conversation we were having um, the last Matrix podcast where, you know, just because um, it's really philosophically philosophically profound doesn't make it an excellent movie. And um, I think that, yeah. So I I had a really great impression of it, but um, I didn't quite get the impact until just recently. Cool. And Austin. Uh, So it's very rare that Ryan and I are like perfectly in sync but uh, this might be one of those episodes where it happens, All man. Right. I <laughs> I hadn't seen this movie in a while, and I had some impressions about it that were positive imprints. But then watching it last night, I found myself having a really difficult time. Um, and and I, I say that with qualification. I don't believe in black and whites in the world. Everything is variation, shades of degree, yada, 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 yada. So I'm just looking at this through a particularly salty lens in order to, you know, not just be like a waffling, qualifying philosopher. Um, But I just don't dig it, you know? So, I like, I think that there are philosophical themes that are interesting, like we hinted at in the last episode. Um, I think there are some fun scenes. I still dig The One. I still dig Neo. Uh, Trinity's still a badass. Morpheus is still cool. The scene with the architect doesn't actually piss me off. I kind of find it interesting, but fuck, man, this movie just doesn't hold together for me. All right. So I would say first thing you got to know about me, and if you listen to the last Matrix podcast, you already know this. I was looking forward to this movie very much. Um, I stayed in line six hours early in costume to see this movie, and I saw it six times in theaters. And then I went through a, you know, it's weird. My relationship with this movie is 
always changing. I said to myself about a year ago, I said basically what Rebecca is saying. I said to myself, oh, I finally get what they were trying to do now. After watching it last night, now I know what they were going for. So the first time I watched it, no fuck. The first like 10 times I watched it when I was in high school, I had no idea what the fuck was going on. I didn't know what they were going for. But you liked the movie, obviously. Uh, I mean, you know, I was like, you got to understand. Like this was my like life, you know. So right. like, so like, I was convincing myself that I was liking it. And you know, when I say I saw it six times, that was probably within the course of a week. Right. You know, like I, I was just like, and, and plus, like when I wanted to understand it, I didn't know what else to do except go see it again. You know, so um, you know, so then a year ago when Rebecca and I were working on a a, a video, I felt like I got it, and I thought it was all about free will and determinism, which is still there. But then again, watching it last night, I was like, no, there's another level here. And it's more about power structures and the nature's, nature of systems, both mathematically and socially. And I'm, I'm always like revising what I think about this movie and what I think the Wachowskis were going for. But I want to kind of frame this discussion. I just want to start with this. Imagine, Ryan, Austin, Rebecca, imagine that with your second film, you revolutionized special effects and inspired a whole generation to question their reality. Now you're expected to do it again, to replicate that impact, and you have a blank check. What do you do? I don't do this. Well, okay. <laughs> but All right. Well, let's just hold- I can tell you what I do, though. Well, I want to get to that. But I want to just let that simmer for everyone else who, for Austin and Rebecca, maybe don't know exactly what they would do. But I want to bring, uh, when after the recap, I want to come back to this because I think they did what I would do. And uh, even though it's a bad movie, <laughs> I still think they they uh, deserve all the credit in the world. For you trying would make what they a better version of this movie. I don't know. Let's go into a recap quickly. Wish me luck on the recap. All right, so it's been six months since Neo realized his potential as the One, but he doesn't know what to do in order to fulfill the prophecy that will destroy the Matrix and liberate mankind. Meanwhile, other members of the Resistance realize that the machines are drilling toward Zion and have precious time before the last human city is annihilated. Eventually, the Oracle calls and tells Neo that the, that the next step in his journey as the One is to seek the Merovingian, to acquire the Keymaker, and go to the source where the path of the One ends. Meanwhile, Agent Smith returns and tells Neo that he is now free of the constraints of the system and is able to copy himself endlessly. He copies himself onto a human resistance member named Bane and enters the real world. Neo, Morpheus, and Trinity meet the Merovingian, free the Keymaker, and Neo enters the source where he meets the Architect, who tells him that the One is not a transcendent means to topple the Matrix and free the human race, but rather just another part of the system of control. The Architect gives Neo a choice, save Trinity from certain death and doom the human race, or do as his five predecessors have done before him, and reinsert his code to the mainframe, reload the Matrix, and allow the human race to repopulate. Neo chooses to save Trinity, dooming the Matrix to further deterioration and Zion to impending doom. Just as Sentinels are closing in on the Nebuchadnezzar in the real world, Neo recognizes that something is different and inexplicably stops the Sentinels with his mind, then passes out. Both Neo and Bane are passed out after Bane has sabotaged a resistance effort to be continued. <laughs> I want to say end of movie, but it's certainly not the end of the movie. 
I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. All right, guys. So I think I I don't want to put words in Rebecca's mouth, but mm-hmm. but if so I, if I were going with, to do so, this is what yeah I yeah say. I know I don't, I don't want to do. <laughs> so let me just let me let me just say I, I want to open it up. I I don't want to put I, I want to open it up to Rebecca. But before I do, I just want to say this. Last time in the podcast, we talked about how serious the impact of the Matrix was on a generation and how it really did inspire people to question their reality, but also question other things. So we ask ourselves, as the Wachowskis, do you just, you know, you you now are the head of this franchise that was stupendously successful beyond your wildest dreams. What do you do? Do you create a, do you continue with the philosophical themes, do you try to awaken a generation? Do you try to awaken an audience again? Do you try to replicate that? Like, how do you do that? Or do you just take the safe route and try to make a cool action movie trilogy, maintain the same distinction between good and evil, maintain the same themes, and just try to make a well-structured movie as well as you can? Well, in my opinion, they took their impact on a generation very seriously. They could have just made this two badass action movies that you know, basically make the machines the enemies, but no, they wanted to awaken their audience again. And instead of awakening them from reality, this time they awakened them to the system that forms their perception of reality. That's what I'm thinking they were trying to do here, but I want to throw this to Rebecca. So Rebecca, in the last podcast, I said that I didn't think the world was ready for the philosophy in this movie. I didn't think they were ready for this new awakening the Wachowskis were trying to impart on their audience. And you said that what you were reading at the time, you were ready for it. So I wanted to ask, what were you were reading and how do you see it reflected in the movie? Yeah, so some of the ideas that I was looking at at the time. Um, so some of them were actually looking at the nature of reality and using characters that were suspicious about the reality that they existed in. Um, maybe they were in a parallel universe. Maybe, you know, there were all sorts, maybe they were on a different planet, right? People kind of wake, waking up was a big theme. Um, waking up into some kind of profound knowledge um, was everywhere at the time. And then this battle, but this kind of epistemological battle between two different sides about whether or not the reality that, they, that you perceive is in fact real, Um and if they're if it's not real, then like how the fuck do you find out what is real? And and then I think which I, what I think the Wachowskis do, and what I think the feminists also eventually kind of did as well, was to really rather than saying okay, there's this real and not real binary, they kind of just fucked up that that binary altogether. You're like, no, let's really think. What if we challenged this idea that there's a real and there's a not real? And we started talking about something as if there's like a feedback loop or right, as if there's this relationship between the real and the not real that isn't quite so easily distinguished as we would like to make it. And so that was definitely happening in the science and feminist science fiction at the time. And I mean, hello, Matrix. So that that really seemed like something that was uh, I was really open to and I was excited to see with like cool, you know, action sequences and some powerful women and that sort of thing. But I also think that it was a, a concept that was circulating at the time, especially in circles of people who felt oppressed. Um, black science fiction was also doing similar things at the time, right? Like this idea that the world that you're living in 
uh, isn't real um, is is really old. Is and it's an important thing that oppressed communities are constantly dialoguing about. So so I, in that sense. I was kind of prepared for it um, and open to it and excited about this joining a conversation that I already saw happening in these other really important spheres. So my que- I guess my question is, when you're saying question their reality, that seems a lot like the first Matrix. I'm curious as to how uh, those traditions of science fiction spoke specifically to the, to the development of the philosophy of the first one in this second film. When you talked about kind of confusing the boundary between the real and the unreal, I think we're speaking specifically about the end when Neo stops the Sentinels, right? Yes, yes, yes. But I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, but I, there's something also that happens, right, at, even at the beginning of the... Um, or that I'm sorry, excuse me, at the end of the first one, right, where uh, Neo comes back to life again in the real world. And suddenly the idea that one of them is the real world and one of them is the fake world stops making as much sense. Or like you can't keep that dualism and make sense of what happens in that situation. So mm-hmm. um, so I, I do think it's a, it's a subtle theme that they sort of slap you in the face with a number of times throughout the, throughout the second film. Um, but I think it's there... I think it's there kind of regularly, uh, especially when you start to think about the machines as beings that you thought were kind of maybe maybe fake or kind of autonomous in some way, and they start to become more real and more lively and more effective in the second film as well. So then, then it becomes so then like you know if you're talking about what the real social is, where's our real society taking place the society stops being the society of humans that are plugged in that you you know imagine a society and it's it becomes this like actual society this relationship between machines and humans and that's the society that you're real that's the the power struggle that you're really engaged in um so right So I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try and simplify this into the way the the way that I have read the film most recently in last night's viewing, and I want I want you to tell me if this is kind of in the ballpark of what you're talking about. Okay. So with the first movie, I think that one of the reasons why it resonated so much is they basically took Plato's allegory of the cave and universalized it. And the reason why it resonated so much is because we were at a stage in society where we could imagine the cave because of computer technology, because of digital digital technology, we could imagine, you know, I'm sure that maybe before this, when people talked about the allegory of the cave and, you know, you you didn't know that there was a world, a world behind you, all you saw was shadows, perhaps people were like, oh, you know, but if I was in the cave, I would know. But now that we see computer technology increasing at such an exponential rate, it really resonated with people. So what I think the Wachowskis did is, all right, what's next? What's the next level of philosophy that you want to impart on your audience to blow their mind? And instead of disillusioning them from the idea that your reality may be artificial, I think what they did is that so that they basically said that the matrix is a system beyond the actual computer that humans jack into. Rather, when when Morpheus says in the first movie, the matrix is a system, Neo, he is even ignorant compared to what we learn in the second film, because what he's saying is that, oh, well, the Matrix is a computer-generated dream world that feeds off humanity. But what Neo ends up learning is that there is a greater system at play, that the system of the Matrix is actually a set of principles and procedures performed by governing bodies to perpetuate the system. In this case, the machines and the humans are trapped in this cyclical system 
that basically uh, oppresses humanity and in some way, I guess, also oppresses the machines that we later find out in the third movie. So in a metaphorical level, that's what Neo wakes up from at the end of Reloaded. It's not that there is a stark division between reality and unreality. If once again, the Wachowskis in the first movie were trying to say, wake up, the things that you touch with your sensory senses could all be artificial. With this movie, I think they're saying the system which informs the way that you perceive the division between real and unreal is also a system that needs to be transcended. Yes. Okay, so it, it, are we? So, so is that kind of? <laughs> does that make sense, Ryan? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. This is so interesting because um, the first film is is generally thought to be inspired by Baudrillard's simulacra and simulation, and then I think we mentioned this before, but Baudrillard famously said, "Like, nah, they didn't get it." Uh, but oh, this, and he, that that's polite compared to what he said. <laughs> right, right. Interestingly enough, though. He said they fucked up. He said they fucked up, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> but interestingly, I think when you move to the second film, and this is only becoming apparent now through this conversation, but Baudrillard wrote um, some, some musings on the critique of political economy, particularly a film called The Mirror of Production, in which he criticizes Marx and... Uh, political economy, so we'll say loosely capitalism or the critique of capitalism, um, and then he criticizes Marx's solution by saying that that all of these ideas, whether it's uh, advocacies for capitalism and the analysis of capitalism in the genre of political economy or whether it's like the critique of political economy through Marxism aren't revolutionary enough because they still fit within what Baudrillard calls the mirror of production. And he says rather than – and it's, he says a bunch of things, but rather than thinking of – alienation or exploitation being something that is like leeching off of this pre-existent capacity to work that, you know, capitalists exploit and suck this like life power out of the workers, which is called like the extraction of labor power, right? Or the extraction of the expenditure of labor power in, in Marxist terminology. Baudrillard says that's not radical enough because that's still thinking that this idea of labor power is like this pre-existent capacity or pre-existent expression of human vitality. He says maybe even more radically than that it's that real oppression or real alienation is that you're turned into labor power in the first instance. So before the extraction can take place, you're turned into a human battery, so to speak, in the terms of like the matrix. So this whole system, the matrix, is designed to feed this homogenous symbiosis between machines and humanity because it – it incorporates, it monopolizes all of human life under its gambit. And then that's where alienation takes place as a second order activity. Does that make sense? I think so. And I kind of want to transition this to the question, do you guys think that if this movie, I mean, in my opinion, and this could just be where I am personally with my intellectual development, I feel like people just weren't ready and I feel no. like if the movie came out today, it might resonate more. Absolutely not, Jared. You don't. You're you're fooling yourself. <laughs> so like 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 the, the 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 craziest thing about going from Matrix One to Two is that when the Matrix One came out, I mean, yeah, that was their second fucking movie, and it looked like master filmmakers. Like it is a it is so tight. It's even though it's two plus hours, and just the way that they uh, compose scenes and stuff at the momentum of the story is great and then in the, it's like in the second movie they forgot everything I think you're right that they basically were like oh wow we blew everyone's mind on earth yeah. how do we do that again <laughs> so we got to double down on all the philosophy which was cool but they just totally forgot the cinematic 
part yeah. about making a movie. Like their storytelling sucks in this movie. Like yeah. you know, they, they try to set it up like getting into the the social dynamics of all the people at, in Zion and stuff, but it just doesn't work compared to the Jesus story expertly told that we got in this dystopian you know way that we've well, never see, seen before. Well, that's an interesting question. I wonder is it just that the narrative or the philosophy that they were trying to impart in the first one is that just more conducive to the, a cinematic well, experience exactly. it, it, than it, trying to explain like postmodern and like systemic, uh, you know, stuff. That, that, that's why I wanted to get to your first question too. Like, what would I have done if I was the Wachowskis? I yeah. think, yeah, they bit off way more than they can chew. They see they blew everyone's mind so much in the first movie, but they don't realize like the the central idea to the Matrix. We are living in a computer. Was is like a character in the movie. That's like what people what really resonates with the movie. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like all you need to do in a trilogy is play with that. You don't need to go into the minutia of the fucking. You know, all the people involved, the Mary Anshin, the, the, the fucking literal key maker and stuff. I mean, like, yeah, give me but, a fucking break. No. And the, and the, and the free will determinism <laughs> thing. Like, Well, I guess I'm saying, look, like, that, that would have been disappointing in its own way. Because people, when they thought of The Matrix, The Matrix wasn't just an action movie. The Matrix was something that blew your fucking yeah, mind. Yeah, but you don't need more than, I, I mean, yeah. But I, that's what people wanted. And that's I know, what they and wanted that's to why deliver. At the, that's why at the end of the second Matrix, all they had to do was go, guess what? The real world's also a matrix there you go mine's yeah. blown everywhere i don't think that wouldn't have blown my mind <laughs> yeah their cliffhangers sucked like no it like, sucks who, no, who gives for a fuck sure. about bane i all i'm saying is when i said all right what would you do i mean to me there's like a hierarchy like you know if if you're you're, you're a pretty cool guy if you want to just create another action movie and you know uh, push special continue to push special effects but if you say, you know what, no, the first time we mixed philosophy, we awakened a whole generation and revolutionized special effects, and we want to fucking double down and do that shit again. I think you can still do it. It's no, already mi- it's mind blowing enough that we're in a computer. You can play around with that. You can even do no. This they stuff went that, the next level. You can do you can do it in a cinematic way. No, but 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 you're saying that basically <laughs> it's just the same awakening. Basically, just just awakening humanity to a division between real and unreal, and then just and dude, then just, I've and, seen and just chill. five times in. I still don't know. I mean, I'm just learning stuff the about movie, it now. I've seen the movie probably 35 times, <laughs> and I'm only st- I'm still learning. Yeah, are we? Is this like a pist- Is this epistemology standpointing? Is that is that what we're doing? I've seen the movie six times. No, my my point is that like okay, they fail. There there should be no movie. You're you're probably right. On, on just a watching and enjoying a movie level, there probably shouldn't be a movie that you have to watch 35 times over a, a span of 20 years yeah. and still be trying to understand it. Yeah, but who, especially why? for a big budget. I but 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 yeah. To, to Rebecca's but, point, I mean, that's just not philosophers. I, we're still trying to understand after that. Many I agree years with you, and... Rebecca. Yeah, yes. there's movies like 2001 and stuff. I mean, there's movies that people are like still like, what does this mean? But this is different. This is more just like. Wait, what? what? Oh, okay, okay. Wait, real quick. Can that I can like, I just wait, simplify Ryan's or ask for a simplification of Ryan's criticism? So, yes, I agree that I think that the film at a narratival level really suffers. Uh, I think it's scattered. I think it's all over the place. I think it's disjointed. Um, I think there's some bits that are just cheesy. It's too heavy-handed with some of the themes, like the determinism, purpose shit. I'm like, yes. okay, we fucking yes, get it already. Yes. But, but. Ryan, are you saying that you don't like it because you think it's just simply like philosophical and thematic and conceptual? No, and I, that the I, narrative I, I would. Like, whereas the first film was a cool story that also just happened to be profound. I don't think that Jared's like uh, you can either do A or B. You can. I think you can do a mixture of both, and you can. Uh, you could have made all of the the philo- philosophical ideas 
boiled down with narrative economy like you're talking about into a very cinematic way like they did the first time. And then, wow, I've never seen that before. I'd be so on board with that movie. They didn't do that. They made a very convoluted, this should be called Exposition the Movie. The whole thing <laughs> is just dialogue, scene after dialogue of like... Uh, and, and, and it's right. played out like it's supposed to be a puzzle. It's it's supposed to be. I really do think that they, while they were writing it, they're like, oh man, when people, when all of our fanboys on the internet go back and are trying to decode this, you know, once somebody's going to get it. But it's like, dude, like you said, you shouldn't have to watch a movie thirty five times, and you know, to and have to write down all the fucking dialogue. Like it doesn't play well like a good movie. It mm. plays like a play that was filmed with a billion dollar budget, like a very masturbatory play. <laughs> All I'm saying is Ouch. that they did a fucking Hail Mary. You know, like they fucking, yeah. I mean, they like, went for it. They, they went, went for it. I'll it. give them that. They I went mean, for it. And you know what? When you go for it like that and you fail, you just fail. You fall hard. Well, like I said, the Burly Brawl, it was, um, it was when I saw that, we were literally cheering in this fucking cinema. Right. And that's very rare. You know, I yeah. was like, oh, that was crazy. As a movie, this, same with the highway. As a scene. movie, this film sucks. As a piece of action philosophy, it's rewarding the more you think about it. Sure. I, I guess I'll give it that. <laughs> I feel like Rebecca and I should let them fight, and we can go off in the corner. And... <laughs> I want to hear what y'all think. Can we, can we talk about uh, like superheroes? End of, of rant for I feel me. Like, I feel like, you know how I've said multiple times on this podcast, and apparently some people were talking about it on Patreon. Um, do you think that this that Neo is a superhero of the left? Does he count? He is. And, and, and I, well, of the left? I, Absolutely. This whole thing is, I mean, when I say that the next level of disillusionment beyond the division between reality and unreality, I think that this one is basically disillusioning you from capitalism. Oh, okay. So it's an anti-capitalistic. I think you could, well, at least this movie, I don't really know how I it bakes it. into the third movie. I haven't seen it in a while. They're definitely super um, left, right? The, the I, I don't know. I would imagine just just from their I'm, movies. I'm, I'm, well, I mean, there's some yeah. real progressive yeah. themes in this. I mean, look at Zion, right? I mean, so in in a very simple sense, in a very sort of like terse, like okay, you've got an exploited class that are turned into that they're turned into literal batteries to like feed the machine right. world. They're like the upper class, right? And then. Um, but there's still a symbiosis between them. They're both sort of connected somehow. So there's like a, a universal race that maybe we could transcend and um, you can connect with them. I mean, there are like themes that would fit into a sort of Marxian or left or anti-capitalist analysis. But um, but it's definitely not like it's not traditionally Marxist. Uh, well, it, let me. So I, I, gotcha. I was thinking more like Foucault type shit. So like, yeah. so there's the the, the counselor Haman scene. I want to draw draw our attention to. So this is uh, during the Zion scene, which is the first 45 minutes of the movie, which is god awful. Yeah, like got like Sucks. those like all of those scenes with with uh, Morpheus talking to Commander Locke and Morpheus talking to the whole auditorium sucks. All yeah. those scenes are bad. The soundtrack is cool. I like mm -hmm. the rave scene. I would have liked it more if it was an orgy instead of a rave, but <laughs> anyway. I like the Rage Against the Machine uh, stuff. The Rage Against the Machine stuff is cool, um, but Counselor Hammond says, it makes one wonder, what is control? He talks about these water machines, and Neo says, like, no, we control these water machines that, that distill our water or that clean our air because we could shut them off if we wanted to. But then he says, but then where would our water come from or our air? Really, what is control? And... You know, that whole thing, that whole... So there's two parts to that talk. After he says that, then he goes on to say, I know that that machine has a purpose. I don't know how it works, but I know it has a purpose. Similarly, Neo, I don't know 
how you do the things that you do, but I know that it must have a purpose too. So on the one hand, you can see how he's foreshadowing the determinist, the determinist free will thing. It's like, you know, oh, you think that you're a badass and there's some sort of divine inspiration to your powers, but it could be just a a cog in a larger system. But on the other hand, when he talks about the nature of control, I think that he is pointing to the fact that, you know, uh, there is the... The ability to turn off the water machine is an illusion of choice that these systems, whether it be capitalism or whatever, put us under. And that's how these systems are able to sustain themselves is by giving you that illusion of choice. I'm not saying that's not, that's what I agree with. These are not my beliefs, but I think that this is what the movie is trying to con- is trying to say to people. Well, I mean, I, I I know that was kind of like an abrupt like, yeah, yeah, cool. But I mean, that that's kind of what I was saying earlier with Baudrillard. It's sort of like a radicalization of a critique of political economy. So rather than just saying there are simply these two classes, these people have the power, these people don't have the power, the people with the power are extracting sort of like a, a, a value from the people who don't have the power. Rather than creating that narrative, it's it's taking place under a different set of parameters that I think um, are much more complex. And it is a sort of like post-structuralist, post-modern critique of power relations. Absolutely. And that's why you get people in Zion. I mean, you have women that are in charge everywhere, which is a really interesting move, right? You have people of color everywhere, which it almost seems like there are more people of color in Zion than there are white people, right? Yeah, which very is, deliberate. Which is, an, I think, an important subtlety that they don't concentrate on, but it's very apparent. Um, and if you look at the people who are on the board, who are on the panel of decision makers, first of all, you got Cornell West, who if people know Cornell who Cornell West, West is, a, is yeah. Cornell West yeah. is an academic intellectual who's a leftist. He's like a He's like a liberation theologian, um, leftist commentator, political activist. Um, and then you got Roy Jones Jr., who's a fucking boxer, but, but a famous black athlete. And then you've got women who are the, the ones that are like the decision makers who are running things, right? So it's a really interesting way of disrupting these traditional power relations or dynamics. And this is kind of like what Rebecca was talking about, that like how do you fit within these systems of patriarchy or these systems of exploitation? And so it, it is really fascinating from that level. And it, I think it is interesting. I was, I was thinking about this last night. Maybe Neo is the superhero of the left that I always bemoan that we don't have enough of. <laughs> You know, speaking, yeah, so that's kind of my realization last night when I rewatched this movie, is that that, that, that was a, a way of reading this film that seemed clearer to me now, but I had never really considered it before, because previously I had always thought of it as like, you know, the Merovingian talks about causality, and the Keymaker talks about everybody has a purpose, and there's so much talk about Neo being able to make a choice. I always thought of about it as just determinism and free will, and I that's still definitely there. But I hadn't seen the more kind of political anti-capitalist message that I think is very much there. So, Rebecca, do you – I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you agree with, with some of this. But my, my worry is do you still think that the film is too um, dude-centric because you were talking about how you were reading a lot of like feminist sci-fi literature? But – and we talked about this a little bit in the first – um, yeah. in the first Matrix is that Trinity is still – she doesn't even pass the Bechtel test, right? Right, yeah. So do those concerns still exist oh, yeah, in a second? For sure. I mean, but at this point, at this point, I mean, like, you know, just like sh- show me a good science fiction film that is released to the masses, right, that passes the Bechtel test, and I will buy you a beer. It's just not very <laughs> common. It's okay. so uncommon. Gravity. Um, 
Yeah, I know. So beer, okay. I'll take. I'll, I'll take, take yeah. a dose. <laughs> <Yeah. here. laughs> so I'm saying. I mean, they exist, but they're but they're just really, really rare. And even the ones that are trying to be left fail in some pretty major ways. Um, and yeah, I so I think it's still frustrating for me that that's the case. That it's, you know, but they made strides. They made strides. Um, the more interesting thing for me is the way that this sort of self-other relationship between the humans and the machines is really troubled. So in that sense, it's not, mm. right. I mean, as Austin was saying, it's not It's not this like simplistic, there's this oppressed class and then there are the people who oppress them. Because as we learn, actually a lot of the machines don't like the system. Whether mm. the, the, the system is as oppressive to the machines, right, as it is. I mean, in some ways that's kind of old school Marxist, right? Marx is really clear that the bourgeois are also oppressed, just not in the same way, to the same extent, right, as the proletariats, whatever. But but I think that that, um, it kind of, for me, brings this like even more radical, like leftist critique to, to, to um, have this idea that there are these two parties, one of which is in power and one of which isn't in power. And then to be like, oh no, shoot, it's actually just this like system and we're all privy to the system and nobody's escaping it. And the machines don't have it, but they're getting fried by Neo, you know, or like they don't really have it that great because their whole life is indentured basically to this power structure. There are only a few machines who really hold actual power, have any real kind of control. So it's really... I think it even goes beyond just that sort of simplistic um, anti-capitalist or, or, or critique of capitalist position and starts to really try and analyze what the, what, um, the kind of these founding concepts of self and other and how those get troubled when you start to talk about relations of power that are not just economic or labor centric, um, mm. but, but social and political and um, epistemological and et cetera. Maybe I should have been. Yeah, I think it's not so much capitalism. I think that the probably the more proper thing to have said was critique of power structures. Yeah. But that's what I mean when I say would this movie have resonated more today, at least on a thematic level, because you even hear terms like systemic racism is something that people talk about now. That's like a, a term that is in the the popular parlance because people now understand that. When, when people say systemic racism, it's a system at play more than just the individual, yes. you know, people that are being hired in these places that exhibit systemic racism. So that's why I say, like, this movie might have been 20 years ahead of its time because they were uh, spewing a message that nobody had even, that, that they just weren't ready for, that no one could even really grasp yet. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so... Because you're, you're starting to make me to engage more with this film more than I wanted to. Because I wanted to just come in with the salty, <laughs> sour-faced, like, I didn't like this. And now I'm kind of like, fuck. And I now you're like, Neo is the hero of the left. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, goddamn you for changing my mind. Um, but, yeah, there is something interesting. So, okay. So, philosoph philosophically interesting, but it still doesn't work. Why doesn't no, it work? It's... And does that detract from the potency of the film more than it was untimely? Well, yeah, here's it's anti cinema. I, well, here's I'm going to get real <laughs> right. They, uh, you know, like the first movie is the hero's journey to a T. Uh -huh. In this movie, they just said, "I don't give a fuck." Yeah, you know, like the, they and, fucked and, up. And, well, you know, like no. if, 
at the same time, that's also ballsy. I mean, it's not like they didn't know. Yeah. You think they didn't know? They, you think that they like? I'm sure they had the hero no, of a thousand that, faces yeah. probably tattooed on their backs they decided when they wrote the, the first one, and they like, decided to it. throw it out the window. Yeah, yeah. exactly. They that's, had the liberty after call... making such a great film. They had the liberty to, to like really take it where they wanted to go. That's what you call cojones, Ryan. But wait, really? don't yeah. name another take... time that's worked. Name another. I'm not name... saying. Well, no, that's why I'm saying it's cojones because it often doesn't work. The only time I can think about it working would be Godfather Two, where they totally just were like, we're going to take a totally different direction on how we're telling this story, and it, uh, and then it worked, and it won. You know, it's one of the best movies. I mean, there are t plenty of art films that work that do not follow the hero's journey, but obviously those aren't multi-million dollar action movies that are supposed to appeal Raid to a wide audience. Raid 2 was another one, you know. That was a totally okay, different thing. Okay, but I think that works the hero's journey. Are we missing the fact that they filmed the second and the third film yes. at the same time? And so, oh, yeah, yes, that's, that's a big deal. Important. So maybe yeah. the hero's yeah. journey does exist, but over the course of two films. Yeah, so Which, that's another thing worth talking about is this movie or these two movies were meant to see back to back. They were supposed to come out at the same time. You're supposed to walk into one theater, see the movie, and then walk what? into the other theater. No, no. Yes, that was the that was the Wachowski's original plan. And through the entirety of production, Joel Silver promised the Wachowskis that that was going to be the case. And then, of course, when they started realizing, crunching the numbers and realizing they could make more money if they delay it until Christmas... Guess what happened? That's insane. Yeah, I my, like one of my best friend's article. dad was in the camera department, actually, and, and filmed the second and third. And so I remember him talking about it in this context that they and they literally filmed it, not even sequentially. It was I mean, because, you know, you film based on locations and shit like that most of the time. Right. So they filmed parts of what we call the third film revolutions before they filmed parts of Reloaded. Right. So that was a huge deal at the time. It's kind of one they, script. They... So I almost. Right, I almost wonder if we lose something by taking it out of its context, which basically means we have to have another podcast about revolutions, <laughs> right? Or revelation. Oh, no. or whatever oh, of course. Of course. I got okay. suspended for skipping school to go see Re uh, Matrix Revolutions with my friend oh, Matt that was... Eddie. That was, uh, we always think back. We're like, was that worth it? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, as many totally times as I've seen it. this movie, I've seen The Matrix Revolutions very few times, probably less than five. <laughs> what? Just because I was, I was just tired you by then. Because I agree, the like, these conclusion? movies these movies are not good. And I think that all the good things about this movie, you could say even less about in Revolutions. I think all the philosophical things we're talking about are more or less, uh, you know, extended through the through revolutions. But in terms of just like this movie is better to podcast about than it is to watch. Watching yes, this movie, I will sucks. agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> like it's more interesting to look at the decisions that the Wachowskis made and look at their legacy and the cultural effect of the Matrix and how they use that to inform the direction they would go in in the second movie. That's more fun to think about than to actually watch that movie and to and to watch the Merovingian, the Oracle, the Keymaker. Everyone talk about determinism. Everyone talk about choice and it being super vague and action <laughs> scenes I mean, with no purpose. That's a really bold statement because it assumes a kind of universal viewer who has uh, who who's going to have this singular perspective on what a fun movie is or what a good movie is. And apparently, I I'm I don't share the same opinions as this universal viewer um, because I do find it an enjoyable movie. I mean, I I have to. I mean, I have to admit that I also liked Jupiter Ascending. So, I mean, I... Hey, me too. I, I like, like that movie. Yeah. You liked it too? Okay, great. I'm in good yeah. company. I thought, like, for sure I was going to laugh and I, and I fucking love Speed Racer. Oh, and everyone yeah. does, and everyone hates that, you know? Like, but so, I, I mean, I like their movies that not everyone likes. But this one, man, is just like, I just don't get it. How do you make The Matrix 
like a classic, and then you make I just all these other it. movies. I just explained it to you. I know, but but how do they forget how They're to probably, make a movie? They didn't want to make a Morty movie. They wanted to make that's action philosophy. philosophy. The first one is so simplistic. I mean, it's it's childish compared to what's happening no, in the second no, two no, films. No, no, no. It's, yes, it's a very it well put together, well, uh, a cinematic, visually told story. You could t- put that movie on mute and still kind of get it's it. It's not easy to do what they did, and it is. It is. There is subtle masterful craft in the Matrix, but look. I mean, once again, I mean, philosophically, they they... philosophically, the first film, what they were oh, achieving okay. philosophically yeah. well, well, was child's play. So when that's you are trying yeah. to get at the sort of much more complex stuff, right, that they're doing in the second and third, you are going to run into the limits. I mean, maybe I don't know. I don't know as much about film as clearly the three of you do, but um, the, I think you would. I imagine you would run into some 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 limits of the craft. That they're just might. Now I'm not saying that they yeah. that, that you should excuse them from all these things, but as I was rewatching them, especially to write about for the YouTube video, I mean, I just could not get over how much they were trying to pack. For, you know, because I was looking at it for, as a philosopher, not as a, as a cinema critic, which I'm decidedly not. Um, and I was so impressed with what they were able to do in the second and third film, and they were only able to do it because they were like, we're going to ignore the fact that they're like just this huge huge gaping you know plot holes everywhere you step you know but we're just nope we can't deal with those because or maybe some of them that you either can't deal with them because there's not enough time or not enough space or whatever or because maybe some of those plot holes are really essential from for being able to maintain the kind of tensions that you need to maintain when you're really trying to talk about sort of like paradoxical truths uh, and that you can't really express easily or in a linear narrative um so i i really feel like they were the second two films even though they might not be enjoyable purely from a movie critic standpoint i feel like there's a reason all three of them are taught in philosophy classes not just the first matrix because they continue to be interesting the second and third ones and interesting and maybe in a much more philosophical than cinematic way but i don't think that makes them bad movies it just makes them bad if what you want them to be is good cinematically. It could still be a good movie, but but yeah, like Jared keeps saying, it's it's like a f- action philosophy or moving philosophy or something like that. I'll give you that. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. All right, guys, we're going to pause this very lively conversation for a second and introduce Brent, who is one of our patrons at WisecrackPlus.com. If you want to join us to fight about movies on this podcast, check out WisecrackPlus.com. And we got Brent on the line. Hey, Brent. Hey, Brent, how are you? Great. How are you guys? I'm doing great. You you just caught us at a time. We're having a very heated, very uh, lively discussion about The Matrix Reloaded. So you came in at a great time. Right, right. Okay. Sounds good. Good. Well, all right. First of all, I want to hear, you, you could be kind of the, the peacemaker. What what do you think about this movie? Um. So The Matrix actually kind of inspired my career choice. I ended up, uh, I'm like a computer engineer. So um, I was all about like all the tech and, and the phones and the, and the, and kind of the, the glamour on that, uh, all the all the story elements kind of got kind of got left to the side on that. <laughs> yeah. So for the first movie, 
Oh yeah. So when the second movie came out, were you pretty excited? Oh, I was, I was, I was first in line to, to watch it and, and watch it, you know, twice. And I was just completely overjoyed to see it. And, and how has it, did you watch it again for this podcast? Oh God. Yes. All right. So, so after like years of it percolating, uh, you know, are, is it a disappointment to you? Is it, do you love the trilogy? What, what are your thoughts? Um, I still, I still, I still love the trilogy. It's mostly nostalgia now. Uh, watching watching the 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 uh, cartoon level of CGI with the the burly brawl and all that kind of takes a little bit away from it, but uh, you know it still it still has a special place in my heart. Yeah, his so face his you... face looks really weird during that brawl, doesn't it? <laughs> Uncanny oh, Valley. It was, it was cool. Oh no, it's still cool. Like that that car sequence still is unmatched. Oh yeah, I would say. Oh yeah. I mean, last night I watched it six times. I just kept rewinding the car it sequence? and well, watching it again. The only part that doesn't look good is when Morpheus is fighting the agent on top of the truck. You could it look very green screen. Yeah. Uh, so, in terms, of, do you do you engage or do you find the philosophy of this movie interesting? Does did it did like kind of did it inspire you to think any in any new ways compared to the first one? It it, it actually did because you know how like like the. Uh, the Oracle and the architect are opposing forces. You got the, the black woman and the white man, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of like the yin and the yang, you know, kind of feeds into that Eastern philosophy a little bit. Absolutely. I think Rebecca wrote about this in the video that she uh, wrote for us on our matrix revolutions. What went wrong? (laughs) I I, I'm on your side. I think the, it didn't age very well, but, uh, but I still like the burly brawl, but, uh, but yeah, these people are trying to talk me into the fact that it uh, has a profound transcendental. <laughs> it transcends like life itself, existence, determinism, uh, and everything. No, I'm saying that they were ambitious <laughs> in their aims, and their heart was in the right place. And unfortunately, their heart was not in the place of making an amazing, fun-to-watch movie. Yeah, and that's where they fucked up. Hey, Brent, they wanted... Brent, you just jumped into the middle of a fight between Jared and Ryan. It's... Forget them. Come hang out with me and Rebecca. Yeah, we're going yeah. go, to go have a beer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> so wh- one of the questions that I, I started this is asking, what would you guys do? Once again, your your second movie revolutionized cinema. It revolutionized special effects. It awoke a whole generation. So I want to hear from Rebecca and Austin. What would you guys do? And Brent. Well, the first thing I would do is kill Neo and make Trinity the center of everything. Um, oh, no, shit. I'm just kidding. I just wanted to be cliche for a second. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure. So Austin, feed in the trolls. Feed in the trolls. Exactly. Someone's got to. Someone's got to. Okay. Yeah. Austin, if you want to go first, I got to think, think about this. Okay. One. See, here's the problem because I have made art. Now, I've never had like an unlimited budget, but I am someone who was given lots of leeway. And what was one thing that I did among many other projects that I've made? I converted a Jean-Paul Sartre play into a tale of like the struggles during IRA uh, during uh, the IRA um, troubles at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival for a month in a theater <laughs> that seated 12 people. So when I'm given leeway, I do wanky, stupid art shit like that that is also philosophically inclined. So I would I would do something like that, but with a billion dollar budget. So, so basically, what 
they did. Absolutely. <laughs> and if you f- and if you fail, at least you go out in a blaze of glory. Because fuck it, at least he, it was fun. He put on Matrix Two at the Edinburgh Fringe Fest. At, bro, I would totally do it. Like in the street, yeah. like a musical theater version of it as well. So that's that's probably what I would do if I were given. I mean, I I, I dig I dig what they attempted to do. I just don't think that it was ultimately successful across the board. But sometimes. Sometimes failure can be spectacularly important, you know? Like, Brent, what about you, man? Yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, absolutely. Uh, no, no, so I I, I actually liked it because I, I did some research before um, you guys called into me. Um, and and I liked how they actually they actually did some computer stuff with with the second one. So Trinity, so when she's breaking into the power station, she actually uses a real life uh, SSH exploit. So that actually was kind of a shout out, shout out to the uh, to the computer community, which wasn't as mainstream at that time as it is now. What about uh, so another computer thing I found interesting about this is that so we have in the first movie, we have 101, which is uh, Neo's number. It's the it's the number of his apartment. And then he is the one. It's kind of like this. and, And it's kind of this thing that follows him. And then in The Matrix Reloaded, it's interesting because. Almost to parallel the, uh, you know, in the first movie, he's like this transcendent holy figure. He is the one, uh, 101. But now in this movie, it takes on a more technical meaning. We see 101 a lot. And correct me if I'm wrong, Brent, but 101 is binary for five, which in a computer is the sixth number, right? So now we're meant to contextualize 101 as him being the sixth incarnation of the one. Yep, six iterations. So what's brilliant about this is that once again, as we're talking about that, the first movie is about like a holy, what's the word, the holy prophecy. And in the second movie, we find out that that holy prophecy is just another cog in the machine, another zero and one in the computer. Don't you guys feel that's disappointed on that? I mean, you know. In what way? And just, it just, it. I don't know. Can Does you, it make a good movie? No. But is it cool? And am I am I like kind of geeking out a little bit talking about it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> can, can, can I bring up one more detail of what I would do in my Matrix yes. sequel? Is that like what I, one kind of cliffhanger or idea that I think at the end of the first Matrix you're kind of left with is what if Neo, the one, you know, flips the switch and then all humans wake up from the Matrix? I, I kept waiting for that scene, which we never really got, you know, kind of. Right. Like, 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 so how awesome would that be in the first, second movie? It's like Neo flips the switch, all uh, kills the machines, and then all of a sudden it's left for humanity to rebuild. But then that, then it's, it's, and then you, you get into all the same issues we did uh, before. Well, my, my thing with that is that people want to see the scenes in the Matrix. People want to see Keanu well, Reeves maybe, doing Kung maybe Fu. Maybe there's still Agent Smith and Kung Fu. Maybe there's still the Matrix. Maybe they use the Matrix and become like a Ready Player One society. I mean, I hear you. That would be cool, but cooler. I'm, I, no, it wouldn't be cooler because at the I, I mean, I, I see why they it didn't do it because you want to see Neo doing badass. You can stuff still in the have Matrix. him doing that. That's what I'm saying. And Not if the Matrix just, is done. No, you can have a cooler version of it with still viruses and stuff. Anyway, I actually want to hear more about uh, some of the computer stuff in there. Oh Brent. yeah, yeah. So uh, so uh, what she actually did, she used a real life uh, tool called NMap, which is a network mapping device or a network mapping software. Um, and what that does is that scans a computer. And it listens. It it says, "Hey, what, what is this listening on? What port is this listening on?" And then you you find vulnerabilities on that. And then so she actually used that through life, like a real pen, pen test or a hacker would use it. So she scanned the system, found that 
the secure shell SSH uh, was vulnerable, uh, and she did what's called a buffer overflow. So she sent it more data than it was expecting to handle. It overwrote the program, and then that's how she was able to own the system. I got a question, Brent. Is So they call the room that Neo goes to to meet the architect, they call it the source. They don't call it the end. They don't call it the door. They don't call it, you know, the final room. They call it the source. Is there any kind of programming term that makes that term relevant that they use that? Um, well, no, I think I think that they're they're in the they're in the architect's room, and then there's the door to the source. Right. So he's like, you're going to go in that door, and then you'll re, you'll 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 reinject your source code and reset the matrix, and then everybody in Diane will die. You'll choose the six people. And and uh, you know the 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 this the loop will continue because there's a there's a programming loop, and then there's also source code. Source code is what you originally program. Did you uh, study math uh, for your educate for your uh, computer programming education? Um, yes, yeah, math is it's very math intensive. A lot of a lot so, of boolean, a lot of um, a lot of binary, like you said, hexadecimal um, uh, variables, uh, arithmetic, and uh, and some trigonometry. Are you familiar with Kurt Gödel and the incompleteness theorem? Uh, no, I am not. No, I've never heard that. Okay, so I've heard that uh, basically in the early 1900s, Gödel was a mathematician, and basically he did this thing called the incompleteness theorem, and he demonstrated that any formal system is inherently incomplete, and that there is an anomaly in every system called a Gödel sentence, and uh, I guess this is reflected in that mathematically. And we actually just spent the whole first part of this podcast talking about how the, uh, that the movie comments a lot on social systems, but it's interesting how it also works on a level of, of mathematics systems and how Neo is that mathematical anomaly. He is the incompleteness theorem in Gödel's work. Uh, also there's an, there's another thing I was trying to think about when I was preparing for this podcast was, um, you ever heard the, the, uh, the old saying, if I had a big enough calculator, I could calculate God. I've not heard that, but no. go on. <laughs> but uh, basically it's like, if, if you have like all the variables in a system, you know, exactly what the, what any, any arithmetic, you know, uh, is going to happen with that. So if you have, mm -hmm. if you know, if the, all the X's are going to be ones, you know, X plus X, you're going to, you know, it's going to always be two. You know, so if you, if you if you have everything, you know, kind of managed down to a subatomic level, you can you can predict things. So that's why they have these prophecies. And they I think that's how they know how things occur outside the matrix. Right. And I think that that's kind of the Merovingian's entire speech makes this point that we're all slaves to cause and effect. We can't yeah. truly choose. Uh, Neo thinks he's choosing freely, but his existence is really just a predictable inevitability in an imperfect equation. So I think that. Yep. That's kind of what Neo realizes, is that if you have a computer that's big enough, then it's not that you can become God, it's that you realize that God is just a part of the system. Yep, exactly. Can God create a rock so big that he can't move it? Yeah, in, in this case, no. And Holy fucking shit. And, and more, more to the point, talking like, uh, you, you know, we talked about how, all right, Wachowskis awoke a generation, what's next? But on the other hand, it's just like, all right, well, the Wachowskis just ended a movie with a character basically becoming Jesus and having infinite power. What the fuck do you do after that? You know, how do you, how do you create a conflict? And I think you that— You turn into Darth Vader. Without having— what what does that mean? You make him evil. I don't know. You keep the story going. I, I'm just I'm just giving well, you an example. Well, he is keeping the story going, but instead of retconning the whole first movie, you basically say, "All right, you know the whole Jesus thing. Well, that's just part of the system of control." I mean, I think that that's relatively a smart thing to do. It's a thing to do. 
<laughs> Wait, so you would have made Neo evil. Is that what you're saying? Saying that that would have been, you know, a way you could have taken it. It would have been interesting, but I don't know what we got. Remember how I, I said at the beginning was... that this might be the podcast where Ryan and I disagree? I think that we have sharply diverged <laughs> yeah. at some point. <laughs> because the other thing, I mean, I keep ha- I hate to be the one who keeps making this, like, maybe simplistic point at, at this juncture, but... I just think that the whole point is that good and bad don't exist in the same way that we imagine them to in the films. Like that's one of the things that the second and third films are trying to do. So you, yeah, so you couldn't. So yeah, Ryan, you couldn't just make him evil. That would like just miss the whole point. Like we, we couldn't just make it a. Oh yeah, okay. Well, that's, you know, you, you know that's what? True. This kind of comes back to the rave scene. So to to Rebecca's point, by the end of Revolutions, we learn that there's like a false dichotomy between the earthly good humans and the cold bad machines yeah but but then why do we have this rave scene at the beginning where we can see this passionate tribal earthly celebration and affirmation of life i wanted to see the equivalent of that for the machines in the matrix revolutions what is the matrix what are the what is the machines ritualistic affirmation of life i wanted it to be neo goes in to the machine city and with his limited perspective he has this fucking like acid trip like experience where he is experiencing the machines. It's just all the Agent Smiths melding together in this crazy weird computer orgy thing. Yes. Yeah. Why isn't that what what the fuck Wachowski's that that would have, you know, had it be more balanced. Yeah. I, I'm all for that. That would have been made it better. But I mean, isn't it isn't it also I mean, I always feel like I end up just if defending these things as if like I just think they're the best movies ever made and I'm always like no but guys <laughs> um, there's something to me about right like the if, if we're looking at the machines and the humans as um, as if they're representing this sort of really old concepts of this self and the other right uh, part of the struggle of affirming others or affirming and by other I mean kind of entities that are uh, understood to be secondary or tertiary or who's who are defined um, in existence to the self right or they're defined by differentiation so you're the norm and they're the other right the the whole point is that you don't ever get pure access to this other you never totally get to see who they are in all of their purity and glory and essence and that shouldn't be the point you shouldn't need that in order to like act justly toward them right or in order to make good decisions with their well-being in mind or in order to like engage in politics with them etc so i mean again this might be like a bit of a stretch but it does to me in some kind of way make sense if if part of what they're doing in the film is trying to carefully negotiate this um, way in which the machines map onto the self-other relationship with the humans then there's a way in which you don't really, you shouldn't really need that sort of like, oh, now suddenly I am one with the machines or now I understand them fully because you're with the humans, you're siding with the humans and you get glimpses of that. And that's sort of like, for those of you who are attending to that, that's enough to get those glimpses is like, that's the call, the ethical call, if you're like Levinasian about it, right? That's the call. But you don't, you shouldn't need more than that in order to have like some kind of curiosity satisfied or something like this. Right, but Neo gets it anyway with the character of Sati and her dad. Yes, but he doesn't get the... Like, f- yeah, but he, I totally agree. I, wait, I'm the one that argued that in my movie, in my video. So yeah, you, I totally agree. But I'm just saying, right, in response to this idea that maybe there could have been this like wild machine orgy, um, that we why didn't we get such a kind of affirmation of machine life? I think that might be one of the reasons, because withholding that is maybe this gesture toward 
a, a more kind of ethical negotiation with those folks than appear like un, uh, an unveiling of their like whole society or their whole nature or all of their essence it would have necessarily have been. Um, had, did any of you guys watch the Animatrix? Oh yeah. Did you guys see the the was it the new Renaissance? I believe uh, the the part one and part two. That was that was the origin story, right? Yes. So I think that kind of answered like that. That even though it kind of seemed almost like like a like a like a site like extended universe kind of thing, but I think that kind of answered like you know their history and and they created the city of zero one and the cradle of situ uh, civilization, you know, and raised their descendants and stuff like that. And they wanted to be like human and be like on their own. And then in the history that the humans actually attacked them, at least you know even though even though Morpheus yeah. doesn't know who struck first, it kind of implies it that. That, that the humans started bombing them first. That is just not a surprise at all. You know, is it? Of course it's not. Humans always strike first. Right, but I guess then the point is, like, at some point you have to, uh, I don't know, like, put the past aside and and, and just, you know, embrace each other. I think that's what The Matrix is all about. That's what the th the trilogy is all about, is, 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 the, is the one, you know, iteration that, that actually changes everything instead of doing the same loop over and over again. Exactly. He transcends the system. All right. Well, um, I think we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Brent, for joining us and uh, really, really appreciate everything that you do, all your support. Yeah. Thank you yeah, so, dude, so good much. Good to meet you. Good to meet you. All right. My pleasure, guys. We can go ahead and uh, move into the mailbag. We can do a quick mailbag if you guys would like. I mean, here's a John, a John Wick question from Cayman. Jared. You said most people who watch John Wick forget about the wife and just view it as a dog owner's revenge film. I think the wife is the entire point. Throughout the film, characters are always saying, bro, it's just a dog. But that statement draws the audience's attention to the fact that it's not just a dog. It's John's last emotional connection to his dead wife. Uh, that's fair. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't mean as much to the character if it wasn't a final gift from his wife. As you mentioned earlier in the last episode, there is that element of transference. The one thing I will say, though, is why not just have it be, you know, just like Death Wish or any of these other revenge films where it's just someone killed my wife and now I'm going to go ape shit, like Max Payne, you know, for video game people. And I think that like that because that that's a little bit tired. That's a little bit of a cliche. So I think by adding the dog as kind of that middle ground, it makes it a bit more fresh. Well, and also is that like that element of of you know, one little action by one idiot, you know, can have all this such dire ramifications. And that's kind of a kind of a cool idea for a movie. Yeah. You know, can I just give a shout out real quick to uh, Lucy, who sent two awesome emails about John Wick? Um, and if I can just summarize the second one, because it was kind of a long one. And she even admitted she's like, sorry for being long winded. But she basically was talking about the fight scenes. And why she thought the fight scenes in John Wick were so much more realistic than even the Jason Bourne films. And she talks about um, like an MMA. If you watch MMA, MMA fighting, she says you'll notice that there are pauses or silences that are much more common. They break away. They struggle more. And you can even sometimes see a fighter thinking how to get out of a sticky situation. And John Wick does this. The silences can be prolonged, especially because he often takes a fight to the ground, Brazilian jiu-jitsu style. And then you can see how John seems to coldly and carefully pause even as he's being choked to death and considers how to turn the tables. And so I thought that was something that was actually that, – that perfectly hit on kind of what we were trying to articulate about the fight scenes in John Wick and, and why they're much more realistic and how they're very different from like 
as we were calling like the ballet dance choreography that you get in a lot of like the Matrix, for example, martial arts films. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I guess Google must be listening in on all my thoughts because I got a lot of YouTube recommendations of like Joe Rogan talking to some martial arts expert on his podcast about how <laughs> Keanu Reeves is such a badass in John Wick and how he does all of his he gets all the jujitsu right. And, you know, they were watching like training videos and stuff. And I don't even listen to Joe Rogan on YouTube. It just Google's fucking reading my mind knows that I watched John Wick recently. So, yeah. I'm on that same level, Lucy. I kind of thought that Lucy wanted to, we need to fly Lucy down. You guys are going to fight each other. Get your MMA Uh, stuff. (laughs) I'd pay to watch that. Cool. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up for today. Thank you so much. Thank you to Brent for joining us. Thank you for Ryan for tolerating our uh, philosophical banter. It was great. Thank you to Rebecca for joining us on this uh, philosophical apologism of this movie. Hmm. And thank you again to Austin for uh, mediating. And thank you to Austin for having quite a journey from hating this movie to realizing someone has finally made a superhero for the left. I, I can change. You can change. I can change. All right, guys. That's it from us. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you whenever we decide to do The Matrix Reloaded. But the next movie we're doing is Incredibles 2. Oh, hell so, yeah. So uh, join, join us for that one. Where can we find you on the internet, Jerry? Oh, you can find me at, at Father of Woody on Instagram. Dog pics. Dog pics all day. And uh, at Wisecrack on the Twitter. Rebecca, where can we find you on the internet? Jesus, uh, nowhere interesting. Uh, if you want to go to academia.edu, <laughs> you can find some of my papers. All right. Uh, Austin hit me up on Twitter Austin underscore Hayden and you can tell me if there are other superheroes of the left that you find interesting because he can change (laughs) ladies and gentlemen he can change (laughs) and you can find at Ryan's shorts uh, or Ryan's game show on YouTube or Facebook I just released one called the oceans conspiracy where we dig into the link between the oceans movies and the Russia investigation it's, Some people are going to think it's a real video. It's a real video. <laughs> it is a real video. Go share it with your friends. Spread the word, everybody. Let's blow the lid off this operation. Hashtag resistance. <laughs> yeah. You're the new superhero for the left. <laughs> that's right. Fuck Trump. Yeah, hey, I'll take it. <laughs> I, I wear a cape. <laughs> All right, guys. That's it. Thank you again. Peace. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. Peace. Ciao.